Welcome to episode four of Mission Transition, powering BC's clean energy economy. We're a Sierra Club BC podcast miniseries about the transition to the next economy. In this episode, we look at the role of First Nations in a clean energy economy. What can the rest of BC learn from what they're doing? And how can this spark an opportunity to work toward reconciliation? Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. Hello, Caitlin. Hi. Caitlin, how would you describe the role of First Nations in our current economy? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when you get right down to it, our entire economy has, in fact, been based on moving Indigenous peoples off of their land. And, you know, in BC, for example, that was done with no treaties. Uh, so First Nations have seen their land taken away and they've been faced with the impacts a lot of a lot of the resource extraction uh, being located close to where they live. As well, they often haven't benefited from any jobs or revenue that might come from that resource extraction. So so really, I mean, there's a, there's a long history as to why this is. But the short story is that the current economy has not been... Um, fair or just to Indigenous peoples. Yeah, and most people wouldn't do disagree with that assessment, Caitlin, including Dr. Judith Sayers. She's the president of the New Chalneth Tribal Council. The other aspect, of course, is that some of the big industries that are being put together in British Columbia, be it Kinder Morgan or the LNG or Site C, some of these projects go against First Nations values. And there are some First Nations that are in support of them. I have to say that. Um, but First Nations don't want these mega projects in their communities that's going to destroy their land, their rights, their ecosystems that support their rights. And so they stay on the outside. And so all these big companies become rich <laughs> and create jobs and the First Nations are left on the side out of choice. But you know, because they don't want to see these kinds of things happening. Yeah, and really, I mean, that's not the end of the story. Not only have First Nations been resisting the way that they've been impacted by the current economy, uh, in fact, they're finding ways to redefine what our economy might look like. Yeah, and I think you can see that particularly with clean energy opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as I was saying, I mean, many Indigenous communities are the ones that are feeling the brunt of the impacts of, of parts of our economy that might be the socioeconomic impacts or the health impacts, for example, of fossil fuel extraction. So it makes sense that they would be the ones that would be leading the way when it comes to this transition to renewable energy. And I mean, really, as we're going to hear through these stories, for those of us who are not Indigenous, there's a lot that we can be learning. Yeah, and First Nations have been developing their own energy generation in BC for at least the past 15 years and seeing the benefits. Judith Sayer says that only makes sense. Well, one of the great things about clean energy is that it has minimal environmental footprint. Every development has a footprint on the environment. We, you know, have to, you know, we have to say that. But you can minimize it by choosing the location that you put it in, the standards you set, and, you know, clean energy it is a, is a very small footprint, no matter what people say. There is, you know, so it's one of those industries that First Nations have embraced because it's high environmental standards. It's not impacting their rights and their title. And it's something that's exciting to them. They can create revenue. They can create jobs. They can diversify their economy because they are involved in clean energy. So let's hear what some examples of that might be. So I asked Judith for an example. 
you know, my community built a run of the river project, and we had it up have had it up and running since 2005. So we were one of the forerunners in First Nations, not in independent power producers, but in First Nations in building a project where we owned a majority. So we own 72.5% as, as Hoopachesset. One of the great ones I love to talk about is Kanakabar, and they have a partnership with Energex. So that's kind of in the uh, Fraser Canyon area and on Quayute Creek. 50 megawatt project, huge project. And the powerhouse is on the reserve. So in British Columbia, that's the only project that I know where part of the infrastructure is on the reserve. And so their deal with Energex is that when they pay off their loan, and I believe it's after 40 years, they own 100% of the project. So right now it's a 50-50 project, right? Um, but So they're generating revenue. So what is this Kanakabar project? Well, it's a run-of-river project, and that's where a small dam is constructed to produce power on a river. Of course, depending on the size of the project, run-of-river projects can, in fact, be very controversial. Yes, you've heard a lot about run-of-river projects. In 2002, BC Hydro issued a call for power. Now, they approved projects where private interests generated renewable power and sold it to BC Hydro. So this is where First Nations saw opportunity, and they started looking at run-of-river projects to control the development around rivers in their territories, in their areas, and also to raise revenue. But, you know, Caitlin, it's an expensive thing to do, so they went looking for partners in the private energy sector. Mm-hmm. And then that's where we heard a lot of concern about the privatization of power generation, as well as the environmental impacts, because some of the projects being proposed were, were not really small scale. They were actually big projects. That's right. And, and plus, many of the deals were not really benefiting First Nations to the degree that they should. The percentage of ownership of First Nations in these deals was actually quite low, some as low as 10%. And mm-hmm. also, BC Hydro locked into some bad deals for a long time time. And in our next episode, we're going to talk more about who owns our power and what that means. But talking about First Nations, they started also to say that it doesn't have to be a run of river project. They're now starting to look towards solar projects and wind and biomass and other ways of producing alternative energy. Yeah. So there's a lot of interest in um, finding new ways to produce, to kind of locally produce distributed energy generation. But, you know, we've heard before, Sue, haven't we, in this series, how BC Hydro isn't going to be buying the power now because um, they've committed to the Site C Mega Dam and they said then they won't need any additional power. That's true. And, and Judith Sayer says the decision to go ahead with Site C is a blow to First Nations. The potential for a clean energy industry for First Nations and other independent power producers coming together and producing is great. Um, you know, right now there's a $8.9 billion investment of, of clean energy in the province that the province is walking away from by making Site C. And they knew this, and they made that decision consciously. They knew they were walking away from opportunities for First Nations. So what are they going to do? Are they going to allow us to build transmission lines so we can sell power to Alberta or Washington? You know, because right now we can't. So yeah, there's a long list of reasons why the Site C mega dam is problematic for British Columbians. And one of those reasons, just to focus on for right now, is how the decision to proceed really flies in the face of the government's stated desire to do more to respect First Nations. Um, like, how can you how can you proceed with this dam 
in a frame of reconciliation when some of the nations impacted were very clear, continue to be very clear that they're opposed. And also because of what Judith Sayers talks about, how there was a lack of consultation around renewable energy and how the dam essentially pulls the, the rug out from any Indigenous-led energy projects. Yeah, and they're seeing the effects already. Projects that were getting close to construction or had been well-planned have already been cancelled. BC Hydro said, we're not going to take the energy from you. So So it's a huge impact. It's already having a huge impact. And you know, Caitlin, this kind of leads us to talking about reconciliation. This doesn't sound like reconciliation. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. You're listening to Mission Transition, powering BC's clean energy economy. I'm Susan Elrington with Caitlin Vernon, and we're talking about clean energy and reconciliation with First Nations. I spoke to Melina Labucan Massimo. Melina is a fellow at the David Suzuki Foundation on Climate Change and Indigenous Knowledge. She's also a member of the Lubicon Cree First Nation in northern Alberta that has been impacted by the tar sands. Now, Melina says she smiles when she hears about net zero or no waste movements because that's what Indigenous values are all about and have been for a very long time. With the renewable energy, I think this is an exciting thing where we can merge Indigenous knowledge and indigenous traditions that are sustainable with renewable energy technology, which I feel like for the first time in our history, there's technology that's a lot more in line with indigenous values and ways of being because, you know, this technology is more reciprocal, more regenerative as opposed to extractive. One of the things Melina is known for is for a project to put solar panels up in her community right in the middle of the tar sands. Is, is that what she's referring to? Mm-hmm. She wants First Nations communities to benefit, not be at the end of the line in receiving this type of technology. For me, I was really keen on implementing renewable energy as opposed to like talking about it and waiting for somebody else to do it. It was very important for me to see like, what does this look like? How do we put this in our community? You know, what does this root solar project look like in the heart of the tar sands? And so that, for me, was really important to essentially teach myself and work with other people um, on renewable energy to put this into Indigenous communities and not just have it in, you know, urban centres or in towns, um, but also have it in small rural communities. So what kind of benefits does Melina want to see for Indigenous communities? Well, I'm going to let her answer that. Well, I mean, there's a whole host of benefits for a lot of remote and northern communities. You know, a lot of these communities are still propane and diesel dependent. The amount of the cost for northern and remote communities is quite expensive. You know, the community I come from is propane dependent for heating, and it costs people a heck of a lot of money. Um, And so there's the benefit of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but also the benefit of reducing our costs of our energy bills. And then, you know, the next one, especially from a community like mine, is reducing um, the amount of resource extraction that's happening around us, which will really help in reducing human health impacts and also the habitat and like land disturbance of the animals and the wildlife that really is dependent on that. And Caitlin, Judith Sayers also speaks about the intangible benefits. She says Chief Patrick Miller from Kanaka Bar also talks about this. I think the major change that he talks about is how it has given people hope. 
you know, from a small Fraser Canyon First Nation, where there's not much up there because the main highway no longer goes through their communities, um, all of a sudden have hope and pride. And, you know, he talks about community pride, like, like it's just amazing. But not only that is that they've made, they've empowered the people to be making those decisions. So they bring people together, they talk about the projects, they bring in the companies, you know, and, and step by step they've been involved in a process. So they have ownership in it. You know, they have buy-in, they know what they're doing. And so now they're looking to the future and saying, what else can we do? Okay, Sue, so clearly there are opportunities for Indigenous communities to benefit from this transition to a clean energy economy. What does that mean for reconciliation with First Nations? Mm -hmm. Melina says we have to understand just how complicated reconciliation can be. You know, for example, a lot of people think reconciliation is about apologizing for past wrongs. And Melina says, yeah, that's a first step. An apology is one step to many, many steps of what reconciliation actually looks like. It's kind of like this idea of if somebody comes into your house and takes over your apartment and, you know, is like, I'm living here now, and then they say sorry, but then it's like, I'm really sorry, but I'm not actually going to leave this apartment and I'm just going to continue to do as I see fit. I don't know who exactly feels reconciled because maybe the person that still is living in the apartment feels really great that they've said sorry. Um, but I think the person that's still out on the street and <laughs> still is struggling to have some sort of determination or sovereignty over their own lives, it doesn't necessarily feel completely reconciled. And I think that's the place that Indigenous communities still a lot of times feel at with reconciliation because there's still a lot of immense resource extraction happening on the land, you know, at not at the consent of communities. Melina makes a good point that for those of us who are not Indigenous ourselves, it's not really up to us to define what reconciliation looks like. And that further, it's not just about apologizing for a wrong, but that we actually need to take steps to, to do something to right that wrong. Um, so, Sue, I think what we're talking about here is that in this transition to a clean energy economy, there can be opportunities for Indigenous peoples, and that this is a good thing that, that could take us one step closer to reconciliation. Yeah, Melina says we should be smart about the opportunities that this transition offers. So I wouldn't say, you know, check mark, we've, we've done reconciliation. It's still a long, arduous, ongoing process that, you know, still really needs to be accounted for. And so I think with this idea of um, a just transition and green energy and uh, energy literacy and energy democracy, um, the transition is, is really an important one that will allow communities to implement climate solutions, allow communities to hopefully be the people that are determining their future. Um, because I think a lot of times in the past, Indigenous communities haven't been able to determine their own future. And as you can imagine, that's a very frustrating place and process to be in. And with renewable energy systems, hopefully the communities are actually determining from the ground level, from the grassroots all the way up and through the leadership and through the whole community of how they want to move forward in a renewable energy just transition era. Melina talked about consent, and that's a key principle of any attempt at reconciliation. And of course, this is where we hear that word UNDRIP. Right. So that's the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is an international declaration that the Canadian government has signed on to and that the new BC government says informs everything they do. So I think um, that when Melina is talking about communities determining their path to their own future, the problem seems to be that in the past, big projects like tar sands mines 
uh, have been built in their territories without their consent, right? Which then leads to all kinds of the socioeconomic and the environmental impacts that, that make it harder for communities to be able to choose their own path. But Melina says there is still opportunity in the next economy. For reconciliation, it's really important to acknowledge what's happened in the past and to acknowledge what's continuing to happen. And and I think that's something that is a good starting point for people to walk in each other's shoes and understand what does what does and what can true reconciliation look like. That would be the hope. And I really do have a lot of hope for the new economy um, in the sense of what does renewable energy look like in communities? How do communities determine their own you know, future and pathways towards a just transition. And I really hope that there's people in all segments of society and really take these into consideration and think about what does a just transition look like so um, we can usher in uh, renewable energy technology to hopefully avert catastrophic climate change. Indeed, those are very wise words from Melina, and I really share her hope for the future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Caitlin, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit here. Before we go this week, I wanted to pick up on a phrase that Melina used a moment ago, energy literacy. And she told me that she traveled around the world talking about clean energy, and then she'd go home to her own family who often didn't understand the nuances of what she was saying. And so she realized there's a need for a common understanding in this field. You know, I think when you're from a indigenous community, it keeps you very aware of like the discrepancies of kind of the type of conversations you're having sometimes. Um, because if like your own family can't really understand what you're saying, that's I think that's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think energy literacy is a huge thing. Um, I think it's important for all segments of our society, from our elders to the children, to really be brought into this idea of what what does it mean you know so what we've started to do in in our community is bring in energy literacy workshops so like teaching the five-year-olds to like the great twos to the great sixes to the adults of what does energy literacy mean what does a kilowatt hour mean what is what is the difference between a renewable energy system and a non-renewable energy system um what is climate change actually doing? And I think that is a big kind of barrier for people to like actually buy into how important um, this transition is. That's a good point. And if I can make a quick plug for Sierra Club BC, always <laughs> that's why we have an education program that goes into the schools. But of course, there's a much bigger conversation to be had with all ages about where our energy comes from and how we will be responding to climate change in a way that respects Indigenous peoples. Absolutely. And Melina also used the phrase energy democracy, and we're going to talk about that more in our next episode of Mission Transition, Powering BC's Clean Energy Economy. Meanwhile, you can see pictures and more information about the Kanaka Bar Project and the Lubicon Solar Grid in the Tar Sands on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. This is a conversation about the transition to a clean energy economy, and you can join that conversation by following us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Sierra Club BC. You could win a pair of Sierra Club BC earbuds by joining the conversation. Just tell us how you think we can use this transition to the next economy for reconciliation with First Nations. 
Tag us at Sierra Club BC and we'll enter your name in a draw to take place at the end of March. You can subscribe to Mission Transition, powering BC's clean energy economy on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It'll really help us out and get more people listening. This podcast series has been made possible by the North Growth Foundation. If you'd like to see Sierra Club BC produce more podcasts, please consider making a donation at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. My thanks to Caitlin Vernon. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. And Kat Zimmer for her technical assistance. And thank you for listening.